Welcome to FRT, the Institute of International Finance podcast, where we look at issues from the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Conan French, Senior Advisor for Digital Finance at the IF, and today I'm really pleased to be reconnecting with Ronit Ghosh, who's Global Head of Banks and Co-Head of Global Fintech at City Research. He studied the banking sector and technology and innovation for a long time, and like me, he's got a background in history and economics, and so I think that the arc of developments in society and changes in technology are something that he puts in context really, really well. And uh, last month, he was the lead author of a comprehensive new report that City GPS put out on future of money, CBDCs, crypto, and 21st century cash. So welcome, Ronit, and uh, help us put these developments in context. Um, the report starts off with some great comments about the original sins of the internet and not having a buy button and no money layer, and the fact that today's digital currencies are kind of the equivalent of where the internet was at 1992, so an early stage and digital money 2.0. But give us your uh, opening thoughts on these developments and the future of money. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Conan. Uh, it's great to be here uh, talk about our report, uh, Digital Money. We think we're at a really interesting tipping point. We've had digital money for decades now, but we call it electronic money or digital money 1.0, which is we're taking the existing account-based financial system, the financial system that existed for centuries pre-internet, pre-computerization. We took that financial system and put it online. Digital money 2.0 is technologically different and potentially in terms of implications profoundly different because it's putting tokens, digital tokens online. It's a bit like taking a bearer bond, a bearer asset and putting it online or a banknote, uh, putting it online. That opens up all kinds of new possibilities, a transfer of value, new players that can take part. And also from a policy perspective, it means you can have programmable money. So You know, if we have another sort of natural disaster or COVID or an earthquake or a hurricane, we need to get money out, um, you know, to society. You can send that with features that say, this is how much money you have for this amount of time. And you can spend it on this kind of, and it just creates a lot more options. Uh, It creates risks as well. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, Risks and changes to the banking industry. And of course, there's the decentralized world of digital money, which is, almost like a social media or a cultural phenomenon in the last six to 12 months. And I'm sure we'll touch upon that as well. I'm thinking of Bitcoin and ETH and so on. So super interesting times. And that's why we wrote the report. And I I think that difference between account-based versus token-based systems is something that can sort of ebb and flow between sounding really complicated and alien or just simple, oh yeah, okay, we're switching to token. You know, what's the big deal here. And I think sorting through what the implications are of these different designs, the technologies that drive them, and the capabilities that they've opened up, you know, continues to be a bit of a challenge as the world dives into some of the details and tries to get past the headlines um, and understand how these new technologies, but really the operations that they enable will change financial intermediation and how we interact. And one of the challenges, I think, is formats. Um, You highlighted in this report that money is entering a format war, um, but that unlike VHS versus Betamax or electricity standards, that you don't really see a winner-take-all competition. So maybe some comments about that uh, format war, what you see, and what these different kinds of uh, tokens and account-based systems uh, may be portend. Sure. So... You know, you have digital money today. So in the consumer space, it's your online bank account. You could think of Visa, MasterCard. 
you know, whereas digital transactions and obviously in the wholesale space, most money moves digitally. Um, trillions of dollars move inside big banks every day. Now, our view or our thesis that we explain in the report is that that digital money will carry on growing. We're not saying tomorrow credit cards will not grow. In most countries around the world, there's still a runway for growth in credit cards and traditional wholesale payments. What we're arguing is that you're going to get those form factors supplemented by digital money 2.0 or tokenized digital money. So whether it's CBDCs that are coming down the pipes in some countries already, or in the future, I mean, decentralized crypto is going to become part, already is becoming part of sort of wealth management portfolios. We just think that the TAM or the total addressable market for digital money 1.0 and 2.0 together is going to grow. But digital money 2.0, because it's coming from a much smaller base, will grow faster. And we're talking trillions of dollars globally could flow into digital money 2.0. What's going to not grow? Um, Cash, checks. I mean, it's a long, you know, it's a decades old story already, but we still have, I mean, I'm uh, I'm doing this podcast from Dubai, the UAE. When I moved here five years ago, I began writing checks again that I hadn't in the UK. I mean, I have friends who go from the UK to the US and they tell me the same story. You write a check for your rent, you write a check for this. And particularly in the B2B space, I mean, (laughs) a fintech friend of mine was joking about receiving his first bank payment. He had a client, a bank client, and the bank mailed him a check, a very big check. And he was like, I'm your fintech provider. You're sending me a check? and this happens you know, in many countries, obviously not in Sweden. You know, if you're sitting in Scandinavia, you've probably not seen a check for 30 years. But both B2C and B2B, the payment systems around the world can be still pretty archaic. They're not you know, digitally native. And so we see that part of the payment system shrinking over time and digital money 1.0, but particularly digital money 2.0, really growing. And as it grows, I think that question of how do these systems interoperate with each other will continue to be uh, a key challenge. And maybe that's a a place where the public sector really focuses moving forward. But how these different formats and standards um, work with each other, I think, will be an issue. Do you see sort of the public sector really focused on that? Do you see the private sector really focused on driving innovation? Or are they too interested in growing certain form factors? Any, Any thoughts or comments about where? You know, a lot of folks chat about interoperability, but do you see it happening anywhere? Where do you expect uh, interoperability to um, be provided from? So um, digital money 1.0 is very much driven in many countries by the private sector, the big, you know, the big commercial banks, the, the credit card companies. And in a way, that created the rails um, because the banks usually work with the central bank um, and local and national payment systems. And the credit card schemes obviously have these global rails. CBDCs, it's almost like the first time in recent history when innovation around money is going back to the public sector. And obviously, you've, you've all seen the studies. I mean, the BIS, this is not our, our data or our research. We've simply re- recycled BIS data in our report. 86% of central banks are doing some kind of project on CBDCs. Now, admittedly, a lot of this is still committee stage, you know, we, you know, you could call coffee and cookie stage. But there are countries now, including big ones like China, that are in the coding stage and putting it out the wild into pilots. And um, it's no longer at committee stage. And you're going to see in the next two, three, four years, many more countries around the world going to, you know, coding and then production. Now, 
some of this, some of the reasons it's happening is for good reasons. There are also some bad reasons it's taking place, but uh, the good reasons are, in a way, we're living in this, we're living in the digital version of, I think of, you know, with our history hats on Conan, um, late 19th century, early 20th century US, when a whole new world has been created, right? Post the railways, the kind of, the, you know, the industrial age, but the Gilded Age. Um, and just like you had sort of policy responses to that, breaking up monopolies, creating public infrastructure, physical, uh, in the physical world, you're going to get that in the digital world because it's a debate to be had. Do we want in a particular country or across the world, one or two companies, however, however good they may be, one or two companies controlling the kind of digital means of production distribution? And so in many countries, it's, as you become more and more digital, it's quite pressing to have a public option. It doesn't need to be that the customer interface, the wallet, has to be a public option, but the format or the protocol inside can be. That's what's happened now. In terms of interoperability, obviously, these public options. So, um, you know, China's a good example, the DCEP. The, the PBOC works with the private sector in a two-tier system. They distribute through the private, you know, through, it could be uh, public banks, it can be private payment companies, it can be private sector banks. And so we're going to see, I think, CBDCs in most countries happen in a two-tier system. Very few central banks, if any, uh, want to become a 17th century Bank of England or a 17th century Bank of Amsterdam, where you could actually go to the bank and, as an individual, deposit money directly. No, so, I mean, you don't want 0800 Federal Reserve, right? You don't, you don't want to have a call center. You, know? you don't want to be dealing with the retail client base directly. You want to intermediate that through the commercial banking system. Other question interoperability is cross-border. Because right now, you know, things like Visa, MasterCard, Rails are great uh, cross-border, but does everyone have a, their own central bank CBDC? Should they be interoperable? And there's some interesting work being done there, including the MCBDC project that some of your listeners will be familiar with. And more and more countries are taking part in these kind of cross-border projects. Still very, very early days when it comes to interoperability, particularly cross-border. Actually, I think that that point of the technology uh, enabling sort of a rethink of roles and responsibilities in the market is a really interesting development. At the IF, we've convened um, central bank governors and other public sector leaders with tech leaders for about six years now in an annual uh, roundtable event on uh, digital currencies. And we've certainly seen that evolution along the development um, curve. And now, of course, see a number of folks really working on development and deployment questions, and really getting into the, the technical details of design considerations. Um, and that is, you know, prompting a, a rethink of society's values. And, you know, a number of central bank governors who have also looked at that arc of history and the roles and responsibilities, also looking at how does society value things like privacy and or controls. And so I, I think that this technology is driving a big rethink of who's doing what in the ecosystem what should be a public good? What should the role of the public sector be? And also a number of concerns. You know, what could uh, developments do to crowd out the private innovation and technology that's been such an important driver here? And I, you know, I wondered if you had, uh, maybe we could move on for a second to some of those impacts and risks that we see from CBDC and, and tokenized money in general, maybe, but CBDC in particular, I know at the IF, we've been very focused on risks of disintermediation of the commercial banking sector, um, speeding and enabling runs on uh, commercial banks during crises when the central bank really wants the opposite to happen. Uh, and these are you know, things we've heard very strong signals back from the public sector that we understand and hear these risks and 
um, had some very uh, strong statements, I think, from central bank governors, deputies, and tech leads in our last uh, few sessions and meetings where they understand these risks. And I think most central banks don't want to get into the business of running a help desk and a password reset uh, operation. <laughs> but some thoughts uh, from you on, on the risks of this shift to CBDC and tokenized money. Sure. I mean, there are positives. Uh, you could talk about inclusion, reducing friction, but those also have the flip side of reducing friction is, do you want to speed up movement of money, particularly if it's unfounded? Um, and there, there's some real issues here. Now, I assume, like you said, Conan, most central banks, financial stability is front and center of all their mandates. If you don't cap um, how much you can have in CBDCs uh, at a household level or even at a corporate level, even more important, you could say for corporates, that's going to become a major potential problem because you could start seeing like the core to a bank is deposit funding. And you can see deposit funding bleeding out from the banking industry or from weaker banks just when you don't want that kind of, kind of behavior. Um, you could accelerate that. Um, I think central banks are fully aware of this. Um, they've heard it loud and clear. And there will probably be some kind of cap. And there'll definitely be, I think, a two-tier system rather than a one-tier system. But there's still a risk. Even in a two-tier system, you say, look, there'll be caps and you'll distribute it. I don't want to have a call center. I don't want to get into retail. You regulated commercial bank or payment company. You act as a di distributor. But there's still a risk there, which is I'm not holding a deposit anymore as Mr. Bank or Mrs. Bank. I'm holding a CBDC. And I'd rather hold a deposit because I can do more with it. It's more fungible. A CBDC is like the, I'm holding a central bank liability on behalf of my client. So it's like an, almost like an asset under custody. It's like someone has come with their dollar bill and put it into their safe deposit box that is in my basement. It's just a digital version of that. Now, I'd rather that that dollar bill was a straightforward deposit because then I could recirculate it through lending and then create that wonderful mechanism called fractional reserve banking. There's still issues even in a two-tier system. The other issue is, and this is more of a kind of challenge for the banking industry more than the central banks is, in recent years, for a variety of reasons, it appears that payment companies and tech companies in particular have been better at building next generation product in the consumer space. Not so much in the institutional space, but in the, more in the consumer space. A lot of the new product innovation development around the world has come from outside the banking industry. And if you get a disruption like CBDCs, that's inevitably going to lead to new applications, new products being built. And commercial banks now need to move fast to build a new product, whether it's wallets, whether it's whatever it is, because otherwise CBDCs are going to be held in a digital wallet that's been built by a card scheme or a, a big internet company. Nothing wrong with that from a kind of, if you like a system or a consumer perspective. But from a bank perspective, the, that's a further sort of wedge or a threat to the consumer banking franchise. So I think it raises all kinds of risks, both systemic, for instance, of flight of funds and crises, but also in terms of client relationships and new product build. Um, it's, not, it's not a straightforward positive. 
And those are your, the points that you had on the two-tier system and having a different type of asset is something that we certainly looked at early at the IF. The, you know, what would be the prudential treatment of these new instruments and how does that look on the bank balance sheet and how does that impact the, the industry? Um, so again, I think that that's been our recurring theme is the small details matter, unintended consequences of how these things flow. And these developments happening at a time when society is really looking for embedded finance, embedded payments, and a very different user experience. For instance, I think China's DCEP, which maybe we can shift to a bit here and talk about some of the opportunities and, and what we see in development curves. But China's DCEP initiative, it's not really just a CBDC because they realized quite quickly this triggers a rethink of the payment system, identity, data and information flow. And I think that that's something else that we'll see increasingly is that the lines between, you know, a central bank issuing and managing money versus, you know, privacy concerns versus data flows across borders and across sectors, that these developments, whether they be CBDC or digital identity, drive a lot of questions in other areas that were traditionally different silos. And so it's a, it's a challenge for the modernization of regulation and um, while the industry is going through this uh, transformation. So maybe some questions about these development curves. And I don't think the report really thought of it as a race, but we certainly did have a moment or two over the past five years where developments have really triggered action. And I think the first one was Facebook's first proposal for uh, what had been called Libra and then Diem, and it's you know further pivoted again now. But the private sector saying, hey, with this new technology, we can enter a realm that had traditionally been a public sector activity of creating sort of next generation money and issuing it. And uh, China is moving forward um, quite strongly, as we mentioned, the big tech companies. And then, of course, you had the development of Bitcoin, um, which first triggered this rethink about what is money, who issues money, and how does this work? And the cryptocurrencies have had their own ups and downs uh, significantly over the last two months. So how do you see the development curve and do you see this as a, as a race and how do you see the public sector coming in? So the narrative of a race or a digital space race or a digital arms race has been raised both at a geographical level, sort of geopolitical level, and also at a kind of industry level. So big tech versus banks um, or China versus the West. When at a geopolitical level, I think it's a little bit overblown. Sure, people do. It's just natural. You look across, see what your neighbors are doing or what people at the frontier are doing. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of policymakers who've been saying, what, what is DCP? What is China doing? Are they ahead of us in air quotes? What do we need to do? Is this an issue? Uh, is there a strategic first mover advantage in CBDC land? I think most I think the use case of CBDCs is primarily domestic. Rather, I mean, there is an international angle, of course. You know, there are projects at the moment uh, that our listeners will be aware of, like the MCBDC project. But the main use case, in my view, is it's a domestic uh, instrument. So the kind of space race, it, it, it can be a little bit overdone, um, but it's definitely a trigger. A bigger trigger in terms of competitiveness is what was the joke? Um, Libra, the project that's launched a thousand CBDCs or whatever it is, so, or maybe a hundred CBDCs. Um, definitely the 2019 Libra announcement kickstarted or accelerated a lot of this work that was being done. In fact, um, I've listened to a presentation by a senior representative of the DM 
formerly Libra Association saying exactly that, that if we've achieved one thing, it's like we've uh, really accelerated or catalyzed CBDCs. You could look at this quantitatively as well. Um, the BIS had some great data that we used in our report that looked at um, aggregation of speeches or public comments by central banks. 2017, 2018, there was very little said publicly, and most of it was on the negative side of or of the dismissive, we don't need it. 2019 was the first year you began to see almost as many constructive or positive comments by central banks about CBDCs as negative. And in 2020, it flipped to primarily positive. So we're doing it, we need to do something. Whereas in 2017, it was like, mm, we don't need to. And of course, one of the tipping points was in 2019 was Libra. So um, there's definitely been a kind of space race element there. Though obviously since then, it's hard to keep up. In my report, we talked about, in our report, we talked about DM or Libra 2.0. It's a month or six weeks old. And I feel like we have to rewrite that chapter already because <laughs> we don't talk about DM 2.0 or Libra 3.0 that we're on. Um, so it's going to be an interesting you know, sort of topic to watch because uh, sure, if DM and particularly Novi, the wallet uh, takes off um, and it will, if it, gets reg- you know, if it gets regulatory approval, it'll take off. I mean, the captive user base is so big. That's going to be a super interesting development to watch in the payment space. And sure, central banks will be looking at that going, no, 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 money is our business. This is our monopoly. And commercial banks think the same. Central banks create money, commercial banks then take it to the next level. If you like M0 to M1 to M3. And, um, and there's gonna, there is an element of space race going on there. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that hyperscale tech is just of a different, of course, by the very name, order of magnitude um, than we've seen before. You know, Facebook with 3.3 billion monthly installed users. Uh, more than any nation on earth. And so when you launch something, of course, that has an immediate uh, impact and move. And China's DCP, I think, has certainly caught the attention in, in Washington, D.C., to the point where you know, um, Jay Powell, chair of the Fed, you saw, had to come out and make a statement last month that we really are working on this. We're moving forward. We have a plan. We've got a process and a team. We've got papers that we're coming out with you. And I, I think that 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 accelerated pace um, is something that we'll continue to see because there is that realization uh, that the technology firms, you know, if, if there's a vacuum, the technology firms can and will fill it. And you mentioned um, BIS, and I think the you know Bank for National Settlements under Augustine Carstens has been really focused on this. They've launched the innovation hubs, Benoit Curé, who had done the initial sort of G7 triage reaction to um, the the Facebook Libra now DM. 1.0 announcement leads those innovation hubs. And I think that you see the central banks of the world saying, you know, we very much want to be at the forefront of this evolution of money. We're going to keep providing the services that we have through money to our economies for, for a long time, and we intend to keep pace. Um, but the question of how that happens and how you get the right talent and technology and all of those design considerations um, set up correctly, I think, is the great challenge going forward. So with that, you know, maybe some closing thoughts on how you see this, this arc playing out. You said you, you know, we issued the report last month and there are sections already that events have raced beyond. At the same time, maybe it's an early phase of this uh, rethink and evolution of money. But big picture, you know, where do you see this uh, headed? Yeah, I mean, I said, like, I think it was chapter four, our stablecoins chapter had a lot on uh, Libra 2.0, DM 1.0 that I probably need to rewrite now. Or my team and I will need to rewrite. But chapter five was about cryptocurrency, decentralized cryptocurrencies. 
And there's been so much happening just in the last couple of days, if not a couple of weeks. You know, the whole debate around ESG, particularly energy consumption, took a whole kind of life of its own, given Elon Musk's tweets. Um, there's even announcements uh, over the last couple of days about moving Bitcoin mining out of China into the US because of some tightening happening in China. Um, so I think in Mongolia, so they were tightening and some other provinces. And, and clearly there are parts of the US um, you know, where the Bitcoin miners that are being set up. So it'd be kind of interesting. I mean, in days, this seems to be changing. Um, but there's an underlying trend. There's an underlying kind of big picture trend, which is that, like take decentralized crypto, it's got to scale now of such size, even with the recent sell-offs, and we're not promoting either way, like buy a particular token or sell a token. That's not our, that's not our job here, on, in particular on this podcast. But the scale is so big that regulators around the world, at least some of them, are constructively engaging with this. Because obviously there are consumer protection issues. These are very volatile assets. But many regulators are saying, let's regulate it rather than just outright ban it. Because the problem with any kind of blockchain or internet technology is, yeah, you could ban it, but you can't completely... You can see this in some African countries um, and some other countries around the world, but uh, one particular African country is front and center in my mind. They announced a ban on Bitcoin by saying the banks can't touch it. It just went outside the banking industry. Population in that country is actually using Bitcoin as much as before. It's just not touching the banking industry. Is that a good thing or a bad thing um, if it goes into the shadows? So what we're seeing is in many places in the US, um, here in the UAE where I'm based, regulators are constructively engaging, uh, sometimes slower than the industry would like or the crypto industry would like, but they're engaging and saying, let's make this safer, regulate it. And I think that genie's out of the bottle, whether it's decentralized crypto or centralized crypto, that genie's out of the bottle. And we're going to see a lot more mainstream institutions uh, in the banking world in the coming months, particularly I think in the US and in Asia, announce more and more uh, initiatives, client-facing initiatives, services and products, whether it's access products and wealth, trading, it's definitely underway. And there's also a lot of thinking going on both in the public sector and the private sector around, you know, what about centralized crypto, be it stable coins or CBDC? So that There'll be short-term noise, short-term volatility, but the underlying fundamental trend towards blockchain-based money or tokenized money, that's, that train is kind of fully underway. And it's part of that broader automation of our economy and our world and digital transformation. You know, the, the experience that users want really just demands sort of different functionality um, than we've got today. And the way I sort of think of it as uh, entering an age of currency competition, and whether it's competition between public and private sector, or increasingly between you know two CBDCs, you could imagine a world where CBDCs will be more difficult even than um, paper currency was to try and keep within borders. And I think that the opportunity and option to say, well, you know, this uh, country and this central bank has put forward an instrument that I really like for this purpose. Um, might be an interesting development from this as well. So continuing to uh, blur lines and, and move across sectors and borders. Well, thank you so much, Renee, for joining us today. We really enjoyed you sharing um, the insights from the report last month and your view on um, central bank digital currencies and digital assets in general. 
I think what stood out for me is you helped walk us through the array of different design considerations and how they present different risks to different market participants. Your comments about a format war coming really stood out to me and the fact that you don't see this, however, as a winner-takes-all scenario. So therefore, interoperability will continue to be really, really important in this area as CBDC and money continue to evolve in development. So thanks very much, Ronit Ghosh, for uh, sharing your expert view on the new developments and the implications for our member banks and the market as a whole. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Conan. With that, we'll look ahead at future episodes of FRT with some more great guests coming up. We'll have Professor Doug Arner of Hong Kong University to discuss fintech big tech landscape, including the trends that he's observed in China. We'll have a check-in with the FSB Secretariat in Basel discussing stablecoins and the FSB CPMI cross-border payments roadmap. And that session will be with Eva Hupkis and Alexandra Stevernu. And then looking forward, our 100th episode is coming up, and that one will be a special check-in with Axel Weber, who's chairman of both UBS and the IAF. Stay safe, and please join us again for these upcoming episodes of FRT. I'm Conan French. Thanks for listening.